You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we hear how decriminalisation of drugs in Portugal has affected rates of substance abuse, crime and drug tourism. Allow the stigma of drug addiction to fall, mm-hmm. uh, to allow people to speak clearly about the subject in schools, in families, everywhere. But first, the General Medical Council in the UK is introducing revalidation for doctors next year. Part of that revalidation will require input from both the doctor's colleagues and patients. A piece of work published this week on bmj.com has looked at this kind of feedback to see if there could be other factors which could have influenced the result. To talk about that research, I'm joined by John Campbell, a professor of general practice and primary care at Peninsula College of Medicine and Dentistry. John, this input is uh, done using multi-source feedback. Can you explain what that is and perhaps where else it's been used? Thanks, Duncan. Well, multi-source feedback is uh, now quite widely used. Um, It was a a technique and an approach to um, identifying professional performance, uh, partly drawn from industry and other commercial backgrounds, in which people give 360-degree type appraisal and so obtain information from a variety of people that they work with, um, their peers, their subordinates, in the case of doctors, perhaps administrative colleagues or medical colleagues, as well as patients. And that's what we were used uh, using the questionnaires for. It's a form of workplace-based assessment. Mm. And it is a system that's been used uh, quite widely, although perhaps not quite with the same focus elsewhere in the world. One of the most well-known uh, and most established um, similar programs is the the PAR program, the Physician Assessment Review Program run in Alberta and Canada Mm. um, by the regulatory body there. And that's quite an established program. So Canada, the States, New Zealand, Australia, uh, other parts of Western Europe, many places are looking at using multi-source feedback in this type of setting. Okay, so you and your colleagues were looking at a range of factors to see if they could be independently predictive of uh, a lower score when it came to the these feedback um, questionnaires. Now, obviously, that's to see if there's perhaps something other than performance that's you know, affecting these scores. What did you find when you looked for that? Well, doctors, of course, are very sensitive uh, you know, about, uh, about this, and many... <laughs> Many doctors are really now uh, signed up to the idea that this is a, a good, uh, good practice to get this type of feedback and to be able to respond to it. But it is important that when this is introduced, that the processes themselves and the instruments that are used to, to capture that feedback are robust and defensible. Yeah. The work was commissioned by the GMC uh, because they are concerned to, to ensure that the highest quality instruments are, are supported and used. Yeah. I think in terms of the, our findings, the first thing to say is that the vast majority, we, we worked with over a 1,000 doctors and nearly 50,000 of their patients and colleagues. So it was a big study uh, done from uh, in various settings across the whole of the UK. And out of that large number of doctors who helped us with the research, um, the vast majority had extremely good feedback. And that, I think, bodes well. But, of course, it's what you would hope and expect. Um, But that, uh, from a scientific and academic perspective, does bring its own problems, the idea of dealing with skewed data. 
But where there were differences, we were able to identify that there were some independent predictors of uh, less favorable feedback or less favorable colleague feedback, and some of these were quite important. For example, um, I suppose we found that um, where doctors had graduated from a medical school that wasn't in Europe, that they were one of the groups who tended to get less favorable patient feedback. And we also worked with doctors in, in various clinical settings and specialties, and psychiatrists as a group tended to have less favorable feedback once we'd corrected for all the other variables uh, that we'd looked at. And so these are important observations to make, and they highlight important issues. As far as colleague feedback was concerned, we, we found that doctors who uh, hadn't graduated either in the UK or in a South Asian medical university um, had tended to have less favorable colleague feedback, as did one or two of the other groups. And so we were able to identify that there was a potential, we felt, for some bias. In addition to the ones that I've mentioned, there was also a suggestion that uh, doctors with variations in the samples of patients or colleagues, the characteristics of the samples of patients or colleagues, also uh, were at risk of getting lower scores from their particular groups. I mean, it's a, an interesting outcome. And I suppose the $64,000 question is, why? Um, and obviously you couldn't do that in this study. Has any other study looked to answer those questions? Well, other, other questionnaire surveys have tended to identify some issues along this line. For example, it's been quite well known in studies of patient satisfaction uh, of uh, health care that older patients tend to have um, better levels of satisfaction with care. Now, we didn't actually see that so much in this study because we weren't looking at satisfaction. We were particularly thinking about the professional practice uh, and professionalism of the mm. doctor. And we were kind of reassured that in most cases that the age and uh, gender especially didn't really come through as strong factors and nor was ethnicity except in respect to the patient feedback. So there was a sort of uh, age and uh, colour blindness almost and that seemed a very good outcome that people seemed to offer reliable and, and consistent assessments irrespective of the age or background, ethnic background of the doctor. And these are important observations but they are just starting points for further for further research. Sure. Now, obviously, there isn't a gold standard for for professionalism. That's what GMC is trying to do with with these tools. So, in the absence of that, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell if if these were actual genuine bias or perhaps indicative of of a difference in performance. Yes, absolutely. And again, really important. We we weren't, for example, we were asking uh, doctors' colleagues about. Uh, their impressions of the doctor's clinical knowledge. But if you're going to actually provide a standard assessment for that, then, of course, you, you would undertake a knowledge test. And uh, this was a, a kind of a proxy approach, if you like, and a probably quite a reasonable proxy approach. In terms of defining what professionalism is about, the content of these questionnaires mapped very explicitly to what the GMC has set out as uh, good medical practice. But they weren't just about clinical or, or technical skills. They were also addressing areas such as the doctor's ability and to work as part of a team or their issues, uh, their, their performance in respect of keeping records or in respect of uh, confidentiality and uh, communicating with patients. So a wide range of areas was being asked about. And in terms of defining a, a kind of gold standard approach to these, 
uh, we're probably still some way from being able to define a gold standard in respect of um, professional performance. Uh, probably the first thing to do is to begin to describe how doctors uh, perform across the board, and this is a, probably a useful step uh, in that direction. So, um, you know, with these results and this potential bias that that comes out of these tools, and what does that mean for using them for revalidation as the GMC plans to do really quite Yes, I mean, revalidation is planned to be introduced uh, toward the end of next year. And um, our feeling as researchers is that these tools have a potentially quite an important place in contributing to the process. But our strong recommendation, and I think this is builds on where the GMC is already uh, at, our strong recommendation is that we have to be very cautious about how we use these tools and also in how we respond to doctors whose performance might be regarded as outlying either doctors who have exceptionally high scores or the small number of doctors who have exceptionally low scores. Our recommendation is that until we've got a lot more data, we really should be using this principally for formative purposes, that is to guide doctors' professional development, to, to, to allow doctors to begin to identify areas where they might want to take further practice and guide their own continuing professional development and education. So there is lots of potential, but we feel that we're, we're not at the stage yet where uh, we could use these questionnaires in isolation as a sort of pass-fail assessment of a doctor. We feel that would be quite inappropriate just now, but there is potential that they can very positively be used uh, to help inform patients and to, to guide doctors and to support the, the GMC in its approach to appraisal and revalidation. Well, John, thank you very much for taking the time to explain your research to us today. Thanks very much. And that research paper is now available online on bmj.com. Now, in 2001, Portugal abolished all criminal penalties for personal possession of drugs, effectively decriminalising their use. The world's attention has been on that country to see how effective this has been at reducing both harm from and crime due to drug-taking. Earlier this week, health journalist Nigel Hawkes interviewed João Galão, president of the Portuguese Drug Institute and chairman of the management board for the European Monitoring Centre on Drugs and Drug Addiction, to find out how effective this policy change has been. It's uh, Nigel Hawkes here, and I'm uh, interviewing João Gulau, who's uh, Portuguese drug czar, about the policy in Portugal of decriminalising drugs. Um, if you could summarise what you think, what you believe the effects of this change in the law have been. I'd say it's very difficult to identify mm -hmm. a, a causal link between the, the, this law, the decriminalization yes. by itself, with the results and the, the, the positive trends in several indicators uh, yes. uh, that we are watching now. We were already developing a network of responses in terms of prevention, in terms of, uh, of uh, treatment, arm reduction, reinsertion, and all this was turned, in my view, much more coherent in this framework of decriminalization. Mm -hmm. Because we were assuming that uh, uh, drug addiction is, uh, uh, in fact, a, a health and social issue, uh, so uh, why put people uh, in jail uh, while suffering from such a, a disease or such a kind of, of problems. Mm -hmm. So 
for me, the the biggest effect of the of the law is to turn things much more coherent, to allow the stigma of drug addiction to fall, mm-hmm. uh, to allow people to speak clearly about the subject in schools, in families, everywhere, and to assume when a problem is present in the in a family and search for professional help. Don't forget that we we have a story of uh, 48 years of fascism. Of course. People fear to approach because they uh, still mm-hmm. had the idea they could be referred to the police or to the to, yes. to court. On the other side of, of the coin, police uh, corporations and uh, and customs became much more available to go on upper ranges of of, of criminal organizations rather losing all okay. that yeah. time and energy with the simple users you know yes they went for the uh, for the sharks instead yeah, of yeah, the yeah. small mm-hmm. fish you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's a it's a total package what, what do you think's been the biggest effect i mean you haven't seen any increase in drug taking no, no. What happened is uh, some of the fears that people had before decriminalization, and uh, namely uh, during the discussion at the parliament, is Portugal is is becoming a uh, paradise for drug addicts for for yeah. all over the world. People will yeah, come planes, yeah. Yeah. planes will come to Lisbon with uh, thousands of uh, drug users to use it yeah. f- freely. Uh, our child will start using f- from very young stages. Mm-hmm. In fact, what we can say 10 years later is uh, there was a, a decrease of the use of all illicit drugs among youngsters, among uh, people from 15 to 19 years old at least. Mm-hmm. That was no drug tourism mm-hmm. in, in Portugal. And, and what about the actual um, statistics of use of different drugs? We, uh, well, we have a, a decrease in the use of heroin in the last in the last years, a slight increase in cocaine, mm-hmm. and a, a little more prominent uh, increase in the use of cannabis. Uh, so, in the, the evolution is is important also in uh, health problems linked to drug use, like AIDS. Uh, we still have problems, of course, they are not solved, but uh, uh, drug users are not the main contingent of uh, of infection now in Portugal. Right. Yeah. Um, some of the trends in, in drug taking are kind of encouraging, but we've seen similar trends in this country and probably in other European countries too. I haven't looked at them all. Is it your impression that the trends are are different in Portugal to other European countries? I'm not sure, and I cannot uh, attribute any kind of uh, responsibility for these trends mm-hmm. to the decision of decriminalization. Yeah, I can say for sure that we feel the people on treatment, the people on police, the people the, and the and the users feel much more comfortable with this framework. Yeah. Uh, and we can say for sure that decriminalization did not lead to, inc- to an increase of the problem. So it's a successful policy? Yes. Uh, yes, uh, as I, I said before, it's mm. the old package. Uh, mm. Mm. It's mm. not just decriminalized. If it, mm. 
uh, I just came from uh, an interview where a journalist on BBC asked me, do you think it would be a good experience to, to try in Mexico? You know, mm. I'd say no. Mm. Because I think this subject must be either on justice or in else. Mm-hmm. to take it out of justice and they have nothing on else to absorb the problem yes you mean if you don't have a health service that uh, is ready to this kind of, of, mm-hmm. of problems mm-hmm. uh, it's better not to do it yes. okay but if we have the time and the means if we can prepare the responses mm-hmm. in terms of the health system and to prepare some proximity responses some uh, proactive responses that can search for uh, disorganized drug users and bring them into the health system. Mm-hmm. That's uh, fine. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. fine. In fact, I believe the policy was combined with putting more money into um, treatment, was it, was it not? Yes, but it was not a dramatic uh, increase. Mm-hmm. I would say the, not the money, not all the money we could spare in the judicial system was... Uh, moved to the health system. Mm. I think it's it's uh, much more cheaper mm-hmm. uh, to put the money on the health system Rather than putting than the in criminal the criminal justice. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Just to give you an idea, my institute, the Institute on Drugs and Drug Addiction, which is a service in the Ministry of Health, has a budget of 0,08% of the total investment in the Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. So, we are talking about peanuts, and we spare money with with this investment. That is uh, around 75 million euros a year. Because less HIV infections, less uh, antiretroviral medicines, less uh, uh, judicial problems, less uh, acquisitive crimes. It's a lot of uh, improvements. Good. Well, thanks very much indeed. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.